0: Well, sometime I will dig out some old photographs of Alex as a little boy. (laughs) He was a sweet baby. (laughs) You would be uh, greatly entertained to know some of the stories of his background. Let me begin by conveying the greetings of my fellow elders to you. Uh, we are engaged at, at home. We are engaged with you. We pray for you. We think about you. We discuss you. The church prays for you. There are people who came up to me this morning who knew that I was preaching here. We're praying. We're praying. Uh, please just just know that. We care very much for you. We are, we are with you. and I eagerly wait every report that I get, and it, it does seem that there is more and more evidence that the Lord is forming you into one of his churches, which is wonderfully encouraging, and you should be encouraged, and we are encouraged, and let us wait upon the Lord to to actually bring this formation to his own conclusion. Uh, I'd like to ask that those who are in the back part of the uh, congregation help me, cup your ear, raise your hand if you can't hear me, I'm a little bit worried about being lost in this room, so if you can't hear me, please uh, let me know, and I'll try to step it up. The subject that I'm to address tonight is the importance of love in the church. I think that apart from the gospel itself, there is nothing that is more emphasized in the letters of the New Testament than the, than the need to love. The need to love, <clears throat> exhortations regarding love, It's really quite overwhelming to me. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I appreciate that, that book after book after book after book in the New Testament, I believe there's only one book in the New Testament that doesn't make a significant contribution to the subject of love. So there's a huge amount of material in the Bible. God willing, you will hear sermons, you'll hear lots of sermons about love as the decades pass because if the men who preach here do expository preaching, if they do continual, ex- consecutive ex, love is going to come up again and, again and again and again and again and again and again because it is shot through the New Testament. And there's a sense in which there's almost nothing that I could talk to you about that is more important in the life of a local congregation than the subject of love. And I hope that if that's if, that, if the importance of love is not already highly elevated in your mind, by the time we're finished, you'll go away saying, there's almost nothing that is more important for us than the pursuit and the development of love and growing and growing and growing in love. Uh, This sermon is going to be a topical sermon, and I'm going to do something that is uh, maybe not the best way to preach, but I'm going to ask us to consider a blizzard of passages. It's a topical sermon. I'd like to bring a lot of text of the Bible to bear upon what we're going to talk about tonight. And since there are going to be so many verse, verses, a lot of them I'm just going to read to you, some I'm going to quote to you, some we'll turn to, but because there's so many verses that uh, I would not expect anyone to remember. So I've prepared some handouts if you want afterwards, just a basic outline that has these texts on them, because it's really the texts that you need to go away with. I'd like to just lay this as a presupposition to everything that we're going to talk about regarding love, that in the Bible <clears throat> there are different types of love, different types of love, different objects of love, different measures of love. I just want to list them because when when we come to the text, these various kinds of love are going to be before us, and I'm talking about all of them. So there is the, we are called and required to love our enemy, and the measure of that love is that we're to pray for them and to do good for them and to bless them. Secondly, we're called upon to love our neighbor. And the measure of that love is we're to love them as we love ourselves. Third is we're called upon to love fellow disciples. And the measure of that love is we're to love each other as Christ has loved us. And we're called to love God. And the measure of that love is with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. There is no way to fill up the volume of love to God that we're supposed to give but these are, these are not all the same. The love for enemy does not have the same emotive content as the love for a brother. But they're all self-giving. And what I'm going to talk about is that the need for the church to grow in love in each one of these dimensions. Enemy, neighbor, brother and sister, God, some of the texts we'll look at will be obvious that, this, that one of these texts is referring to this dimension of love or to this dimension of love. But together, the point is that the people of God are to excel in love in all of its dimensions and in all of its measurements. There is nothing that will be more attractive to God than your love for each other and your love for him. And there is nothing that will be more attractive to lost people nothing that will be more attractive to lost people than them seeing you love each other and them and then seeing them become the objects of your affection. You will never amount to anything if you do not excel in love. What I'd like to do is I'd like us first to, to just against kind of general foundational stuff. Number, number one, I'd like us to consider the centrality and the certainty of love in the individual Christian's experience. Now we're going to be talking about individuals, you as individuals. The certainty of love and the centrality of love in Christian experience. I'd like us just to think about three, three headings. First is that God's entire law is summarized in the commandment to love. God's entire law. All the moral precepts of the Old Testament, the entire law is summarized in this commandment to love. I trust that you're all familiar with Matthew 22, someone comes and asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? His answer is the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And the second commandment is like unto it and it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says this about that in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. He says, brethren, you have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments of God that are horizontal, every one of them, is fulfilled in this one word, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Paul says this, O No one, anything, except to love. Now, that's a mindset. We should have a mindset that whoever we see, we are obligated to love. Owe no one, anything, except to love one another. Now, this focus is immediately upon loving each other in the church. The Roman Christians were to have a sense that they were free, no debts, except one. They were obligated to love one another... For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to you. Well, the, the point I trust is obvious. In terms of individual Christian experience, if you're a Christian what does that mean about your relationship to God's law? If you're a Christian, God's law is written on your heart and it is your delight to obey his law and the essence of the law is to love. It's to love God, it's to love each other, it's to love lost people. If we're going to love, it means we keep the commandments toward one another. If we're going to love, it means we don't lie to each other, we don't commit adultery. If we're going to love, we're going to do these commandments and in doing those commandments, we are, we are actually loving God one another. So this is central to Christian experience in as much as all Christians love God's law. Secondly, Jesus' only new commandment is that Christians love each other as he has loved them. Now, I think I'm looking at some seasoned Christians, so you all know where that is, right? It's in John chapter 13 where Jesus is at the last night before his crucifixion and he has the disciples in a private setting and he says there's, there's a new commandment I give you. In John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's a new commandment. What's new? It's a new object. Now disciples are the object as opposed to neighbor. It's new in the sense of the expression It's not as we love ourselves, like that's how we love our neighbor, how we love ourselves. It's new in the sense that we have a whole larger dimension. We're supposed to love each other as the Lord Jesus has loved us. And what does he add to that? It's by this that all people are going to know that you are my disciples. The love that Jesus is talking about is so observable that it makes an impression It's not something that is just in the heart. It's not something that just gets expressed in prayer meetings. It is so tangibly observable that people see that that guy, that woman, is a follower of Jesus Christ. That person has been so delivered from selfishness and meanness, and he's so delivered over to affection to his brothers and sisters, everybody sees that and they know that you're one of his disciples. They will never know that you are a disciple of Jesus by your confession of doctrine. They will never know that you are a disciple of Jesus by the kind of structure you may set up in the church itself. Anybody can have sound doctrine. Anybody can set up structures. It takes divine power to turn people into lovers like this. And Jesus said, this is how people are going to know. So if you care to have any significant effect on lost people... If you care to have a badge that God's people see as, yes, those are disciples, this is it. It's going to be that you're so observably affectionate toward each other that people know. The third heading under this is that the new birth always produces love for God and for other people. It always does. Wherever you have the new birth, it always produces love without exception. I'm just going to read these texts. These texts are all from the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. It's not only that people outside of us will recognize, yes, that's a disciple because he loves. We'll see it too. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has given us commandment. Verse 7 of chapter 4, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for, because God is love. Now, we're talking about the most basic elements of Christian experience, right? Our hearts are so turned to God's law that we want to love people because that's the essence of the law. We are real disciples of Jesus, so we love each other in observable ways so that everybody sees the badge. And if we're born again, it's certain that we have been transformed to love God and to love other people. Now, if this is so certain and central for individual Christian experience we should not be surprised that it becomes very central to corporate Christian experience this this love this profound enablement to love God and to love people is at the center of individual Christian experience and we should not be surprised to realize that that which is central to the individual becomes central to the corporate body so I would like to turn our attention now away from the individual. and I'd like to turn our attention now to directives to the churches regarding love. We make this assumption, right? We make this assumption that the visible church should be made up of self-conscious disciples of Jesus Christ. There may be occasions where somebody becomes a member and they prove later to not be members, but we make the assumption that the church is to be compo- <clears throat> composed of living stones. The church is to be composed of people that have been born again, of people that show all the fruits of the holy of the of, the, of conversion. So we assume that the people of God gathered together love. But nonetheless, nonetheless, the New Testament is full of admonitions to love. <clears throat> of directions to love, of details about love. And why is that? You would think if, if this is just central to each one of our individual experiences, you'd think it just would be sort of a no-brainer. We just coast in the church in a, in a sea of love. But it's not so. It's not so because each of us as individuals have a lot of remaining corruption. And it's, it's not so because we're rubbing shoulders with real Christians who are really sinners. And there's a lot of opportunity for conflict. There's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding. And it must not exist in the Christian church. And the remedy to all that is that the churches take responsibility to grow in love. So I'd like us to look at some of these directions. And there's two, there's just two big categories under directions. The first is the priority of love. That is that churches must recognize the priority Christ assigns to love in his church you must recognize you must come to grips with how highly Jesus esteems love in the church it can never be a matter of indifference to the church it's our expectation that the Lord is forming you into a church and likely at the beginning of that there will be such a richness of love it will be wonderful it can dissipate it can dissipate, and the Lord would be displeased if it does. And one of, the, one of the primary concerns is that in each of your minds and in the corporate mind from the leadership, that, that it's just restated, 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 reinvigorated, revivified, that Jesus sets the highest priority on love in his assembly. So look, I'm going to ask us to look now. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn. There's three texts I want us to turn to. The first is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 12. You appreciate the church in Corinth was full of divisions, full of carnality of different sorts. One of the issues of division was regarding spiritual gifts, and people wanted certain spiritual gifts, and people thought they had spiritual gifts, and they're exercising those gifts in ways that are carnal. And... Chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14 are about the divisions in the church regarding spiritual gifts, and Paul's giving instruction regarding spiritual gifts. And right in the middle of that, at, verse, at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, he says, "...but earnestly desire the best gifts." So yes, it's right for, those, for them to be earnestly desiring the best gifts. Yet I will show you a more excellent way. to will show you something that is more important than these gifts— and that leads into chapter 13. The more excellent way, this, the thing is far greater than the gifts, is love. And he, all of chapter 13 is, is devoted to that subject. And then Paul says this in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest Christian virtue is love. Now, we can say that about individuals, of course, but this is, a, this is in the context of the corporate divisions. The greatest virtue is love. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, we're going to come back to this verse, to chapter 14, verse 1. Just, just see the point that he's making. Spiritual gifts are great. Spiritual gifts are important. Functioning as a body, exercising your gifts, to one another... It's wonderful, desire the best gifts, but there's something that's more important. And the something that's more important is love. The Corinthians could have been fine if they never had any gifts of tongues. They could have been fine if all the things that they were clamoring after, if they never had any of them. But they could not be fine if they didn't have love. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that when Paul is talking about this division and all the proper aspiration for spiritual gifts, there's something more important. There's a priority given to love. The second verse is first Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. Each chapter in the in First Peter makes some significant con Contribution to the subject of love, and I'm just going to pass over them. I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning to read in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, it's this language that I want to underscore and above all things, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, he's... Peter is drawing their attention to some really big things. Above everything else. Above everything else. Have fervent love for one another. It's interesting how he begins this in the light of the fact that everything's about to end, but the end of all things is at hand. He's anticipating the return of the Lord. He's anticipating that all the sufferings that they were going through is just about over. In the light of the end of all things, what's most important? Well, there are a lot of things, but the most important thing is that they be fervent in love. The next passage is in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is, has, is writing about a great list of virtues. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. Now, those are important things, right? Notice his next words, verse 14. But above... All these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. The things that he writes in verses 12 and 13 are pretty, pretty important, pretty big-time things. But it's that language, but above all of this, above all these things... Put on love. Now, the the translations are different. I don't know what translations you have. This is the New King James. This translation refers to love as the bond of perfection. In the original language, the idea is a bond which holds things together. And he's saying that you need to have love more than anything else because it's love that holds things together. It's love that holds things together. The people of God are very different. And as you exist longer and there's more and more people brought in and more people converted, I hope there'll be a whole range of ethnicities and economic backgrounds and everything that divides human beings. I hope they'll all be here. That'll be hard. You'll be different. You'll agitate each other. There'll be things you'll have to forgive. Nothing will hold you together. Your structures, your ecclesiology, your documents, nothing will hold you together except the bond of love. All the other things I just mentioned are very important for their own sakes. But you could have all those things and fall apart because it is love that is the bond that holds the people together. Now, in this passage... I'm going to read it again. Above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And here's a church of different types of people. It's it's love that will bind them together. And it's only in that context that the peace of God is going to rule in their hearts. But to which also you are called in one body. That's what they're called to. The Colossian church is called to peace in one body. They cannot fulfill their calling if they start dividing. They're called to peace in one body and love. Love is the only thing that's going to make that happen. I'm talking about from the human perspective. They're different. They're called to unity. They're called to peace. And it will only be true in the context of this one thing that bonds the people of God together, and it's their love. Well, the point that I'm trying to make from these passages is that Christ puts the highest priority on love in the church. That's the first directive, that we must raise the issue of our love to the highest level of awareness. The second directive is about the pursuit of love. And that is that churches must self-consciously Develop greater and greater love. The first was we need to elevate the whole issue in our minds. But now, beyond elevating it in our minds, we need to pursue love. We need to actually increase in love. And again, I'd like to ask you to, to turn, please, to three passages. One will be now in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> now, Ephesians is in many ways parallel to the book of Colossians. Paul brings up many of the same things in these two books. And what we're going to look at here is a a parallel with what we were reading in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 4, I'd like to read verses 1 through 4. Colossians 4, 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling with which you are called. Now in Colossians, he says they're called to peace and to unity in one body. They're called to that. He's taken up the idea of calling again. Beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Like in the Colossians church, the Colossians were to be aware that they were called to unity. In this place Paul is making the same point you've been called to unity you've been called to peace and therefore you need to love one another. In verse 3 he refers to that bond again. Well it's the same bond that he was referring to in the book of Colossians. But what I want to stress here is what he says in verse 3 this translation endeavoring to keep the spirit endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's not the. It's not the. It's. It's not an adequate translation. Endeavoring to keep. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. The Greek word is spoudazo. It means be in a hurry, be hasty, be eager to keep a watch on the bond of peace. It There can't be. It can't be just that. You elevate this to a high point. You've got to do some things. You've got to. You've got to live in such a way that you're paying attention. Because that's what you're called to. It's interesting to trace through how Paul uh, connects the subject of love to the church in the development of of the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Before the foundations of the world, God predestined us in love to be adopted as his children. In chapter 2, when he refers to our conversions in time... He says in chapter 2 that it was because of the great love by which he loved us that he united us to his son in time. In chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, this prayer, he's praying that they would grow in this, dimense, in this immense dimensions of the love of Christ. Now in the passage that we just read, he's calling them to love each other because this is necessary to your calling. Now he's going to say some more about love. Looking a little bit further in chapter 4. This passage is too complicated for tonight, this passage. But what Paul goes on to say is that the resurrected Christ has given gifts to the church. And those gifts are apostles and teachers, uh, apostles and, and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And he's given those pastors and teachers so they would minister to the people of God. So what? So that they would minister to one another. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to speak the truth to each other in love. And the effect of that The effect of the ministers properly ministering, the effect of the saints ministering to one another, according to verse 16, is the whole church grows up in love. Well, it's a complicated passage, so you look at it some other time. But get the point of this. Get the point of this. In love, the risen Christ has given ministers to the church. They have a responsibility to minister to the saints of God so the saints of God will love each other properly and speak the truth to each other in love. It would be really mistaken if we thought that meant each one of you should preach to each other and just have nice affections. It's that we're supposed to minister to, we're supposed to communicate to each other in love, and the effect is that by the virtue of Christ, the church then will grow in love. I'm actually saying it incorrectly. It's that the church will grow, and it will be in the context of love. the The emphasis of verse sixteen is not that the church grows in love; it's the church that grows in all the ways it's supposed to grow. And that will be in the context of love. Never grow. The church will never, all the dimensions of maturity that this passage refers to that I haven't read, all the dimensions of the church's maturity will never be attained unless it is in the context of love. Ponder that. There's almost nothing that we can talk about for you that is more important than love. So, all right, that's, that's the first text. The second text is from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. I want to introduce a new concept to you about your attitude in church attendance. Why do you you bother to attend church? Well, this passage is going to put something in your mind that some of you may not have thought of. In verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10, um, the writer says, and let us... Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching this is he's giving he's been giving these really positive encouragements like to pray and to seek god and to persevere and now he's talking about and don't don't forsake your meetings and what he's supposed to do in the meetings? Well, in this passage, he doesn't, he doesn't say, don't, don't skip the meetings because we worship God there, or don't skip the meetings because we will have the sacraments there, or don't skip, the mi-. don't skip the meetings because when you get together, you're supposed to think about each other. You're supposed to ponder each other. You're supposed to consider each other in order to provoke each other to love and to good works. This is something that's supposed to be done. It's not. It's not enough to simply have this high in our minds. This is some. <laughs> now you appreciate how all this could be taken wrong, right? I mean, I'm not encouraging you to start looking at each other and analyzing each other in some carnal way. But, but that is the language of this passage. Is we're supposed to come together and think about each other. We're supposed to ponder each other. And the English translation "provoke" is actually a pretty good translation, but it's the idea that with some degree of vigor, we're supposed to stimulate each other, whether it's in saying words or whether it's in whatever it is. There's to be the self-conscious sense: when I go to the meetings this week, I'm to go there not just for my sake, and not just for my soul's sake, and not just for God's glory. I'm to go there to participate in this in this life that we have, where we're doing things to encourage what? The most basic things, love and good works. The faith that saves is a faith that works through love. Most basic things, and that's what the writer is saying. It's all under the category of the need to pursue love. I'd like just to look at one more passage. And that's back to our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians, chapter fourteen. I'm turning us to this passage for one word, in verse fourteen, in chapter fourteen, verse one. You remember the context that we talked about a moment ago. He says, "Pursue love, and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy." It's great to desire spiritual gifts. Here's here's apostolic warrant for aspiring to have spiritual gifts. But Paul has already said that it is the Spirit that assigns spiritual gifts. It's fine to aspire them, but you're going to only get what the Spirit of God has designated for you. But not, it's not that way in love. Everyone's supposed to love. So it's fine to aspire to the spiritual gifts, but everyone is supposed to love. Now, this word pursue, is, is that what I, I want you to think about this word? It's the, the, it's the Greek word dioko. It means to prosecute something. If you, in the texts that refer to the people of God being persecuted, this is the word that would be used. If you're writing something about hunting, a hunter tracking its prey, this pursue, track it down, that's, that's the word that would be used here. It's a vigorous word. It's an extremely vigorous word. You can't do this word without some energy. Well, pursue love, he says. That's, this is the word that Paul uses about himself in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I've already attained, or have already, but I press on. That's the word. I pursue. Well, I want to just read you some verses where the Spirit of God used this word, pursue, track down, be vigorous, where he uses this particular word in reference to love. Just listen to these verses. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now, that's, that's the New King James. But it's this verb, dioko, pursuing hospitality. So the idea that the people of God is nice... No, no, we're supposed to be pursuing, pursuing, pursuing hospitality. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us pursue the things that make for peace... And the things by which one may edify each other. Romans 14 is in the context of the divisions in Rome. The weak and the strong, scruples. What Paul's saying? Pursue certain things. The kingdom of God is not those scruples. The kingdom of God is love and joy and righteousness. So pursue the things that make for peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Often you'll hear this verse referred to in reference to the holiness that we must have without which no one will see the Lord, and that's right. But there are two things here. If we don't pursue peace, we won't see the Lord either. We're supposed to pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 cha- Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warrant- listen, listen to this, 1 Thessalonians Five. You, you, got, you should really know this passage. This is an imperative passage for stable church life. How should, okay, you look at some, you exhort, now we exhort you brothers, Paul says, warn those who are unruly. So if you've got people in the church that are unruly, you're responsible to warn them. Comfort the faint-hearted. There'll be lots of those. There'll be a lot of faint-hearted people that they don't need to be scolded. They don't need to be warned. They need to be comforted. Uphold the weak. And there are some of those too. They'll never get to heaven unless you hold their hand. So uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for yourselves and for all. Figure. Always pursue this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, a personal admonition to Timothy. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. And again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, and love. This is not a how-to sermon. This, This is a sermon meant to bring us to principles. We must elevate the importance of love to have... To have the same view that Jesus has, we must elevate our view in the church. But also, we must, we must appreciate that we must take steps to grow in love. We, wherever you are, whatever level of maturity you're at, you're always in risk of falling back. You always should be going larger in love. Well, now I'd like to bring one final point. And that is, I'd like us to look at how the priority and the pursuit of love is enforced by Jesus Christ. How the priority and the pursuit of love are enforced by Jesus Christ. Enforced is an intentional word. There are all kinds of encouragements and cheerful directions and things. But in the passages I'm going to ask you to look at, Jesus is enforcing this priority and pursuit of love. And so I'd like you to turn to the book of Revelation. I'd like us to look <clears throat> at what Jesus says to two churches in Revelation chapter 2. These, of course, are, there's a lot of word pictures here, and I I certainly do not mean to lead you astray. These are word pictures, and I'll ask you to, to think. Tonight, tomorrow, the next few days, come back to this and, and, and think whether the interpretation of these passages that I'm going to give you, whether this is right or not. At the end of chapter 1, John sees in this vision, he sees seven candlesticks, and then he sees Christ walking among the candlesticks. And he says there that these seven candlesticks are the seven churches in Asia. And the the picture, of course, is that Christ is with his seven churches. And then you have, in chapter 2, you have a little message that Christ sends to each one of these seven churches. Now, the first church that's addressed is the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. They are wonderfully commended. In verse two of chapter two, I know your works, says Christ. I know your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and not become weary. These are these are among the highest kinds of commendations that the Son of God could give to the Church. They've done so many things that are right, so many things that are wonderful. But he has Jesus has this criticism of them. It's about love. They failed in love. But I have this against you, he says in verse four, that you have left your first love. I don't think that means they've apostatized. I don't think that they they have a love for Christ and they've given it up and now they don't love Christ. I think it's about initial love. They have lost their initial love. They have lost the vigor and the intensity of their initial love. And they need to go back. They need to go back to what they used to be. They need to repent. And they need to go back to the first works. But the great problem in this church is that they have failed in love. The first love, the initial love, the ardor for loving God and loving each other and loving lost people, it's not there anymore. And I want you to appreciate the threat that Jesus makes. The threat is that if you don't repent and get this right about love, I will remove your candlestick. Now, what are the candlesticks? The candlestick is the church. And I think the point of that passage is that Jesus is saying that what makes you a church, I'll take it away. You'll still gather and you'll still have your doctrine. You'll still have all the stuff and the organization. But I'm going to take out what really makes you a church. Well, you can read into that what you might. But that is the threat and the focus of Jesus' concern is that there is their failure of love. Now, he also sends a message to the church in Thyatira. <clears throat> this church is messed up, the church in Thy- Thyatira. And it begins in verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, "'These things,' says the Son of God, "'who has li- eyes like a flame of fire "'and his feet like fine brass.'" Notice what he says. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So he's commending them for their works and for their love and for their patience. Now he starts to criticize them. This is a terrible situation. He criticizes them for this prophetess that they've allowed to be in their church, And this woman is teaching false doctrine, and this woman is leading people into immorality. And, I mean, you can read the passage. She's being successful in their church, teaching false doctrine, seducing people into immorality. And there's a lot of language here. Jesus is very critical of this. Notice the threat that he gives. Jesus threatens to kill them. This woman and those people that are following her wrong doctrine and her immorality he promises to kill them but there's no threat to the church itself there's no threat to the church itself there's no statement if you don't get this right I'm going to take away your candlestick there is no threat to the church itself I just want you to appreciate the difference between these two churches the Ephesian church is very correct but they failed at love This church loves, and they're commended for it, but doctrinally and morally, they are a mess. But there's no threat to them that Jesus will take away the essence of their church. What should we appreciate about that? I think an obvious conclusion is that Jesus is more concerned with love than he is with correctness. Now, we can't read the New Testament fairly without appreciating that Paul wants correctness. Jesus wants correctness. He wants us to be exact in doctrine. He wants us to ferret out false teachers. He wants us to do everything right. But when it comes to a contrast between one church who's correct and has failed in love and another church who does love has failed in so many areas, there's no threat to that church. The threat is to the church that's so correct and so right and so good, but it's failing in love. Well, the point I'm simply trying to make is that Jesus, in these two messages, enforces. He enforces the priority that he gives to love and he enforces the need to pursue love. The church in Ephesus can still make it. They have to repent. They have to go back to the first works. I mean, they can still sustain their candlestick. They're still the people of God. This is not hopeless for them. But if they don't get love right, none of the other stuff matters. And that's what I want to leave with you. You shouldn't have to choose between being correct or being loving to bring it all together. But you're in far greater danger if you fail in love than if you fail in correctness. Don't you know churches that are a mess? But they're affectionate, and God seems to bless them. This is why. Jesus gives a very high priority to love, and he expects his people to sustain it, and if they fall away from it, then they repent and they go back. Jesus expects a high priority and a diligent pursuit of love in his churches, and there's every reason to think that can characterize you. I heard, I've heard this more than a few times. I heard you pray, thanking God for the love that's among the people. I've heard reports of that. Great. You have not attained where these priorities should take you. May there never come a day when we look back on the Emanuel Church of Winston-Salem and say they have failed But may it always be true that they are a lighthouse of truth and a lighthouse of love, and everyone is drawn to that. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father, we thank you that you have loved us and that you have forgiven our sins. And you know the shame that many of us feel in reference to our sins and how unlovely and unlovable many of us feel and have felt. But you have loved us. You have drawn us into the circle of your affections and the circle of your grace, into the context of your love. And we just bow our faces and thank you. And because you desire that we would grow in love and show love, We pray together. We pray for each of us as individuals that you'd help us to be more given to love, that you'd help us to raise the elevation of love in our minds, help us to pursue love. But we pray for this young group whom you are forming into a church. And we pray that from the very beginning, even before their constitution, but from the very beginning and for decades and decades to come, that you would make them to be vigorous examples of the Spirit producing love among them. We commend them to you, and we pray together in Jesus' name, amen.